A late report from NBC News Washington says mobster Joseph Balacci is balking and may not appear Friday at a crime hearing. Balacci reportedly wants promises he'll not be tried for any crimes he admits, and these are said to include four murders. The committee has refused such promises. We'll hold a closed session tomorrow. Highlights of today's hearings follow immediately. Frank McGee, NBC News, New York. of such a criminal organization as Casa Nostra is frightening. This organization attempts to be a form of government unto itself and outside of the law. This tightly knit association of professional criminals demands and gets complete dedication and unquestioned obedience of its members to orders, instructions, and commands from the ruling authority or the boss, or bosses thereof. <clears throat> family, re family, religion, and country are all secondary and required to be subservient to the interest of this vicious criminal syndicate. The Cosa Nostra, the United States Senate investigates. NBC News presents one of a series of special programs on the Senate investigation of the nationwide crime syndicate known as the Cosa Nostra, the mob, the syndicate. Here is NBC correspondent Robert McCormick. Chairman McClellan today again took his investigation subcommittee into the bloody maze of organized crime, inspired by information furnished by one Joseph Valachi, a member of the crime syndicate Cosa Nostra. Valachi turned informer because he himself was afraid of the murderous disciplinarians of his own organization. Valachi is serving a 20-year narcotic sentence and a life term for murder committed in prison when he thought a fellow inmate was the gang executioner commissioned to kill him for violating Cosa Nostra rules. The huge Senate caucus room, the scene of many past McClellan investigations, was crowded, but reporters, television cameramen, and photographers perhaps outnumbered the spectators. McClellan and his committee will again talk to Valachi tomorrow in secret. Friday, the historic stool pigeon is scheduled to take the stand in an open hearing, but he is reported to be balking unless granted immunity from crimes he might be involved in by his own testimony. Today, McClellan laid out this course for the investigation. <coughs> During the course of these hearings, we intend to examine the nature of criminal organizations. We hope to determine whether existing laws are sufficient. 
We will give attention to the question of whether law enforcement agencies need more authority. And I may say personally that I have in mind a statute to deal directly with and to prohibit membership in such a criminal secret organization as Casa Nostra. We hope the hearings will serve not only to provide material and information for legislative study and guidance, but that it also will alert the people of our country to the magnitude of this problem and prompt greater cooperation and assistance to law enforcement agencies by individual citizens. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 121. I mean, it's the very last episode in the group of episodes related to the great awakening of the American mafia in America. It's the story of the Valachi hearings, and they were a crescendo. The moment in our country's collective conscience that we all looked at each other and knew. We not only got introduced to the Italian Mafia as a national crime syndicate, but the public would listen in shock as the Valachi hearings gave everyone a chance to hear the ultimate rat, Joe Valachi, spill the beans on the inner workings and construct of this ever-secret organization, the Cosa Nostra. It was absolutely high theater, and Joe Valachi should have been an actor, because nobody could have played him better and certainly not Charles Bronson, who actually did play him in a Hollywood movie about it all. Oh, he was a rat, all right. Well, that is what you called him if you were a member of the Cosa Nostra. But if you were a member of the American public, he was on his way to becoming anything but a rat. He would go down in history as a bit of a folk hero. You don't even have to know much of this history to know something about Valachi. You know, I love the Godfather series of movies. I suppose all of us who love those movies might have a favorite scene. Whether it's your favorite scene or not, there is a scene in The Godfather based on Valachi. But we'll get to that in a moment. The Valachi hearings, also known as the McClellan hearings, investigated organized crime activities across the United States. The hearings were initiated by Arkansas Senator John L. McClellan in 1963. They were named after the major government witness against the American Mafia, foot soldier and made man, Joseph Valachi. The trial exposed American organized crime to the world through Valachi's televised testimony. At the trial, Valachi was the first member of the Italian-American Mafia to acknowledge its existence publicly, and he is credited with the popularization of the term Cosa Nostra. The trial also exposed the hierarchy of the American Mafia, including the five families in the commission. In October 1963, Valachi testified before Senator John L. McClellan's Congressional Committee on Organized Crime, the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations of the U.S. Senate Committee on Government Operations. He gave the American public a first-hand account of Mafia activities in the United States. 
Valachi had agreed to testify against the mafia and expose its dark past after landing in prison for a heroin charge alongside his boss, Don Vito Genovese. Fueled by anger at his former organization and a fear for his life after receiving the kiss of death from Genovese, Valachi reached out to testify, knowing the only other likely option was death. Much of the knowledge accessible to the public today about the American Mafia was first disclosed in Joseph Valachi's televised testimony. Valachi was a low-ranking member of the New York-based Genovese crime family. Valachi was the first-ever government witness to come forward from the American Mafia itself, at least the major one. Valachi was able to provide many details of the history of the Cosa Nostra, its structure, its operations, its rituals, as well as naming many active and former members of the major crime families. Valachi testified in vivid and minute detail on his day-to-day life in organized crime and a first-time-ever public account of life as a soldier of Cosa Nostra, including its rites of initiation. These televised hearings brought home to average Americans the violence and the intimidation routinely used by the mafia to further and protect its criminal enterprises. Valachi disclosed that the mafia was called Cosa Nostra, our thing, or this thing of ours in Italian. He would explain that Cosa Nostra was a term used within the organization itself, and the term mafia was an outsider term. At the time, Cosa Nostra was understood as a proper name, fostered by the FBI and disseminated by the media. The designation gained wide popularity and almost replaced the term mafia. The assassination of President Kennedy one month after the hearings took a lot of steam out of Robert Kennedy's war on the mafia. However, later, due in part to Valachi's disclosures, the United States Congress eventually passed two new laws to strengthen federal racketeering and gambling statutes and to aid the Federal Bureau of Investigation's fight against mob influence. The first was the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, and it provided for the use of court-ordered electronic surveillance in the investigation of certain specified violations. The second piece of legislation was the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations, or RICO, statute of 1970. That statute allowed organized groups to be prosecuted for all of their diverse criminal activities without the crimes being linked by a perpetrator or all-encompassing conspiracy. These two pieces of legislation, along with the greater use of agents for undercover work, had, by the late 1970s, helped the FBI develop cases that, into the 1980s, would put almost all of the major traditional crime family heads in prison. In 1964, the U.S. Department of Justice urged Valachi to write down his personal history of his underworld career. Although Valachi was only expected to fill in the gaps in his formal questioning, the resulting account of his 30-year criminal career was a rambling 1,180-page manuscript titled The Real Thing. Nicholas Katzenbach was the U.S. Attorney General at the time, and he authorized the public release of Valachi's manuscript. He hoped that publication of Valachi's story would aid law enforcement and possibly encourage other criminal informers to step forward. 
The author, Peter Moss, who first broke Valachi's story in the Saturday Evening Post, was assigned the job of editing the manuscript, and he was permitted to interview Valachi in his Washington, D.C. jail cell. But then a funny thing happened. The American-Italian Anti-Defamation League promoted a national campaign against the book on the grounds that it would reinforce negative ethnic stereotypes. If the book's publication was not stopped, they would appeal directly to the White House. Katzenbach reversed his decision to publish the book after a meeting with President Lyndon Johnson. It was an action that embarrassed the Justice Department. But nevertheless, Katzenbach now had his marching orders. In May 1966, Katzenbach asked a district court to stop Moss from publishing the book, the first time that a U.S. Attorney General had ever tried to ban a book. Moss was never permitted to publish his edition of Valachi's original memoirs, but he was allowed to publish a third-person account based upon interviews he himself had conducted with Valachi. These formed the basis of the book, The Valachi Papers, which was published in 1968. And as I alluded to earlier, I'll close with maybe just a little bit more on The Godfather. Francis Ford Coppola, in his director's commentary on The Godfather Part II, which came out in 1974, mentioned that the scenes depicting the Senate committee interrogation of Michael Corleone and Frank Pantangeli are based on Valachi's federal hearings, and that Pantangeli is like a Valachi figure. It's hard to understand the enormity of these events in their historical context, but it was a real pivot in this country after decades and decades of secret but expansive integration of organized crime into our economy and into our politics. In today's world, really, just about 60 years later or 70 years later, it may be hard to fathom the idea that the FBI was not entirely capable of taking out the mafia as an organized crime element in this country. It's hard to imagine that knowing what a formidable force the FBI is in today's law enforcement circles. But it truly was the case in the 1950s and the 1960s. And certainly if it wasn't a question of capability, it certainly was a question of will. And remember, the reason for going on this wander is to understand in greater context how all of these elements came together and interacted at the time of the JFK assassination. First witness was a former counsel for the committee, Attorney General Robert Kennedy. The picture is an ugly one. It shows what has been aptly described as a private government of organized crime. A government with an annual income of billions, resting on the base of human suffering and moral corruption. In 1957, more than a hundred top racketeers met at the now infamous crime convention at Appalachian, New York. But until 1960, the federal government had only the barest shreds of evidence about what happened at that meeting. A number of the delegates, including those from Chicago, escaped detection. Federal investigative agencies are now pooling information on more than 1,100 major racketeers. Because of the investigative vigilance possible as a result of this intelligence effort, 
such a meeting could not occur unobserved today. Because of intelligence gathered from Joseph Palacci and other informants, we know that Casa Nostra is run by a commission and that the leaders of Casa Nostra in most major cities are responsible to the commission. We know that membership in the commission varies from nine and 12 to 12 active members. And we know who the active members of the commission are today. We know that in the past two years, at least three carefully planned commission meetings had to be called off because the leaders learned that we uncovered their well-concealed plans and their meeting places. We know that the commission makes major policy decisions for the organization, settles disputes among the families, and allocates territories of criminal operation within the organizations. For example, we now know that the meeting at Appalachian was called by a leading racketeer in an effort to resolve the problem created by the murder of Albert Anastasia. The racketeer was concerned that Anastasia had brought too many individuals not worthy of membership into the organization. To ensure the security of the organization, the racketeer wanted these men removed. A particular concern to the racketeer was that he had violated commission rules in causing the attempted assassination of Frank Costello, deposed New York racket spores, and the murder of Anastasia. He wanted commission approval of these acts, which he has received. We know that the commission now has before it the question of whether to intercede in the Gallo-Propacci family gangland war in New York City. Gang wars produce factionalism, and continued factionalism in the underworld produces sources of information to law enforcement. Indications are that the gangland leaders will resolve the Gallo-Propacci fight. The casualty list of this one gang war alone offers a somber illustration of how cruel and calculating the underworld continues to be. Since the summer of 1961, there have been five persons murdered and 13 persons seriously injured. Ten of these were shot and one nearly strangled, one beaten in a New York nightclub, and one beaten and then thrown from a speeding car. I might say, Mr. Chairman, that both the Gallows, Larry and Joe Gallo, appeared before this committee, as did uh, Mr. Propacci. Such violence is not limited to New York. There have been gangland murders since 19... There have been 37 gangland murders since 1960 in Chicago alone. And in the Youngstown, Ohio area, there have been 70 bombings since 1950. We know that Joseph Magliocco, who has taken over in Brooklyn, as successor to the recently deceased Joseph Profacci, has not been confirmed by the commission and will probably not be. This is despite the fact that Magliocco recently sought the support of the commission, members Angelo Bruno and Steve Magadino. We know that while Vito Genovese is in federal prison, Thomas Eboli is substituting for him in New York, and Jerry Katina is doing the same in New Jersey. Because of the power that Genovese wielded within the organization, and the fear in which he is held by the New York organization, no move has been made to take over the top spot while his appeal on a narcotics conviction is pending in the courts. If Genovese stays in prison after his case is concluded, we anticipate a major underworld struggle in New York.
Next, we'll hear an excerpt from the testimony of New York City's Deputy Chief Inspector John F. Shanley, who was head of the Criminal Investigation Bureau. It's important to understand that local law enforcement, especially the local law enforcement in the city of New York, was well acquainted with the mafia and well acquainted with their ways. And he offers a unique insight into how law enforcement, the law enforcement of the capital city of organized crime, New York, really studied and understood the animal at hand, and perhaps knew as much about the underworld and its ways as any law enforcement group in the country. Valachi may have stolen the show during the hearings, but it was testimony like you are about to hear from Mr. Shanley that drove home the ways of the Cosa Nostra and delivered the message from a highly credible source, not a mobster under indictment for a drug or murder charge. It was a unique and highly credible moment of how a trained eye, looking in, saw organized crime at that moment. And he was sharing it with all the world to see and hear. New York Police Commissioner Michael Murphy said law officers are hindered by the lack of cooperation from those who deal with hoodlums, sometimes union or business leaders in a labor dispute, or gamblers or entrepreneurs who find they can get money from racketeering loan sharks. He suggested a nationwide clearinghouse to gather criminal intelligence. Next came the colorful testimony of New York City's Deputy Chief Inspector, John F. Shanley, head of the Criminal Investigation Bureau. The organized crime rulers, as exemplified by these five families, which will be under scrutiny during these hearings, have had relatively long reigns. The stability of command, frustrating to the police, must be puzzling to the public. These overlords have remained in their position of power, despite ruthless and ambition ambitious underlings on the one side and a full might of the federal, state, and municipal enforcement on the other. This can be accounted for, to a degree, by certain tactics, methods of operation employed by them. Law enforcement efforts on the fringe of these kingdoms have had some success. However, police progression towards the core of this subculture is hard going, and the nearer the heart, the tougher the coverings. This condition, unfortunate for law enforcement, is achieved through various measures. All have evolved from experience, all are employed in one form or another by each of the five families, and all have proven successful. Some of these shields are in the form of tasks performed by subordinates. Others are variations on traditions, and still others, adaptions of practices used either in business or affairs of the state. Among these protective measures are the following. Insulation. Every lawbreaker tries to avoid arrest. These efforts usually become more concrete and complicated in direct proportion to the prestige and cunning of the perpetrator. The top ranks of these families seldom become involved in crimes in such a manner that would subject them to embarrassment, much less arrest. Their personal conduct is free of obvious misdeeds. Social associations are generally very restricted, and contact with, actually lawbreakers, with actual lawbreakers is non-existent. Routine observations of their lives would indicate, for the most part, exemplary conduct. Of necessity, as the levels descend, the members get closer to the operations and become increasingly vulnerable to police activity. But the, is de the descent is deep in the pyramid and a long way from the top. 
Specific plans and devices are used, but basically the strongest insulation is supplied by a philosophy which permeates the group. That is, the boss must be protected. Inculcation of this thinking on the membership has been highly successful. Whether in the younger men, this stems from the hope that such sacrifices in the beginning will eventually afford them similar comfort, or in the case of the older men who have never advanced, this thinking has become a part of a way of life, or whether it's a combination of fear and the traditional distaste of informing cannot be firmly stated. But it is this philosophy that gives the strongest protection to the hierarchy of these infamous families, and it is a philosophy which has produced 30 years of silence, the witness to be heard being the only one who dared to abandon this credo. Respect. Another inviolate rule is a requirement that there must be a strong sense of respect for leaders and traditions. This is beyond merely protecting the boss. It exceeds deference to any leader, and it is not confined to ordinary bowers and scrapers present in all organizations. This is respect in the true sense of the word. With relations to individuals, it seems to be achieved partly by position and partly by seniority, with stress on the former. Although all things being reasonably equal, the older member has more prestige. Among some older men, it, evolved, it involves hat-tipping and bowing, reminiscent of royalty, but usually it is less courtly, although by no means subtle. It is unmistakable. A member's position and the value of his accounts will appear, in many cases, to be enhanced by age per se. Perhaps old age, under these circumstances, is a superior achievement in itself. In public places, the reflex responses triggered by the need to comply with this code have been beneficial to law enforcement. The terms of address, the tone of voice, the held door, the profit seat, and demeanor generally frequently reveal status in different groups. Based on these observations, it is easy to believe that the neglect of such niceties might well bring severe discipline to the offender. A number of sleepers, high-ranking members previously considered possessors of routine membership, have been uncovered from deep probes started by displays of this nature, the buffer. As has been said, the top members of this evil group, as a rule, do not mix or even do business with their immediate subordinates. They deal through a buffer, usually around the same age, who is carefully selected and highly trusted. When traveling, they generally have this person with them. This underling acts as an aide, but he is no menial. He drives the boss when necessary, but he is not a chauffeur. He handles messages from the field, but he is not a messenger. He discusses problems with the boss, but he is not a counselor. He would fight for his boss, but he is not a bodyguard. He travels with the boss socially, but he is not his equal. He performs a variety of functions, none overtly criminal, although no doubt he, forces, he, he furthers many a conspiracy. The buffer's main duty is to stay between the boss and trouble. Rumor had it that Vito Genovese had placed a $100,000 contract on Joe Valachi. The year was 1962, and Genovese was in the same prison as Valachi. Allegedly, Genovese had delivered to Valachi the kiss of death, which was a mafia custom signifying that Valachi was to die. Not the kind of kiss you look forward to. And it was because Genovese suspected him of being a government informant of violating Omerta, his oath as a made man. Joe Valachi was a lower-level mafia member for most of his life, but he became a household name in the 1960s as the first mafioso to break the code of Omerta about the notorious organized crime syndicate 
Cosa Nostra. Valachi was a member of the family run by Vito Genovese. He was a native of New York, and Valachi had a turbulent childhood, and he would later state that it was his background that forced him to join organized crime. He began his criminal career early, a 15-year-old dropout with smash-and-grab skills. He eventually joined a mob outfit in the 1930s, a group known as the Minutemen, and he got into the bar business, dabbled in horse racing, and managed a route of jukeboxes and vending machines. That's when he wasn't participating in murders. Along the way, Valachi recounted such real-life characters as Funzy, Charlie Bullets, Pip the Blind, Dolly Dimples, Cockeye Nick, and The Gap. Valachi married Mildred Reyna, the daughter of gun-down boss Tom Reyna, in 1932, and soon they had a son. Valachi noted in The Real Thing that his wife was a saint, and there isn't a woman on earth that is better than her. But life in the mafia has a way of tearing things apart. In the 1930s, when the Castellamere's War was at its peak, Valachi served as a soldier under the likes of Gaetano Reyna, Salvatore Maranzano, and Charles Lucky Luciano. At one point, he was an associate of the Lucchese crime family. However, after the murder of Salvatore Maranzano in 1931, Valachi joined sides with the Genovese family. Valachi was a soldier in the crew of Anthony Strollo. Fast forward to 1962, and Valachi had now been convicted and sent to prison for 15 to 20 years on narcotics charges. He blamed Genovese for his predicament, and word got back to him that Genovese had put out a contract on his life. One day in the prison yard at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, where Valachi was serving his sentence, Valachi became suspicious of an inmate named John Saup, and he suspected that Saup was the man hired to carry out the Genovese contract. On June 22, 1962, Valachi attacked Saup in the prison yard with a pipe, and he beat him to death, only to discover later that Saup had nothing to do with either Genovese or the Mafia, and he had just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Valachi had mistaken Saup for another inmate, Joseph Di Palermo, whom Valachi felt was the man who was set to kill him under the contract that Genovese had put out. Valachi was charged with the murder of Saup, and his anger at the mafia in general, and Genovese in particular, only accelerated after this event. It was at this moment of pivot, now facing life in prison for the murder of Saup, that Valachi would make a deal with the federal government to tell everything that he had learned about the mafia in his more than 30-year career in it. As we know, he testified at a televised hearing in front of the U.S. Senate's McClellan Committee investigating organized crime in the U.S., and he did so for the first time on September 27, 1963. In the morning session of the questioning by Senator McClellan, Jerome Alderman, who was general counsel of the committee and other senators who were members of the committee, took Valachi's testimony, which dealt principally with the circumstances leading up to the crime he committed in the Atlanta penitentiary, where he murdered his fellow inmate. The inmate he thought had been designated by the Cosa Nostra to kill him. In his testimony, Valachi said that while he was in the federal detention home in New York City in 1961, still awaiting trial with others on his narcotics case, 
One of his co-defendants was Vito Aguiecci. Valachi said that following their conviction, he and Aguiecci became friends en route to the Atlanta penitentiary, where they were to be confined. He referred to Aguiecci as the greaseball. He said that was the name used to describe Italian-born individuals who had not become Americanized. In his testimony, Valachi said that this Aguiecci was likely the individual who informed on him to Genovese, and that the information given by Aguiecci to Genovese resulted in his being marked for death by Cosa Nostra. His explosive testimony riveted the country for weeks. He provided the names of the bosses of virtually every mafia family in the U.S., many of whom up until that time had been completely unknown to the public. And he recounted the more than 30 murders that he had been involved in, who had ordered them, why they had been ordered, and in general gave the world its first look at the inner workings of the mafia. His testimony resulted in the convictions and imprisonment of many mafia leaders. After his testimony, Valachi was transferred to various jails and prisons, eventually winding up in the federal penitentiary at La Tuna in Texas, where he spent the remainder of his life. Upon learning that the man he had beaten to death in prison had not been sent to murder him, as he had originally thought, Valachi would utter this famous quote, and it goes like this. You can imagine my embarrassment when I learned that I had killed the wrong man. Prison life was difficult for Valachi, who tried to hang himself with an extension cord three times. No one ever carried out the anticipated hit on his life, and without fanfare, he died of a heart attack at the Federal Correctional Institute in Laguna on April 3, 1971. Attorney General Robert Kennedy called Valachi's testimony and revelations the biggest single intelligence breakthrough yet in combating organized crime and racketeering in the United States. Valachi did keep one secret until he died. Disowned by his wife and son, both of whom were in the Federal Witness Protection Program, Valachi's will named Marie Jackson, a divorcee from Niagara Falls, executor of his estate. Valachi left everything he had to Jackson, even going so far as to list her mother as the secondary beneficiary. The development bewildered Western New Yorkers and mafia experts across the country when Niagara County surrogate court records revealed her name in 1971. Who was Marie Jackson? What did she know? How did a mobster from East Harlem strike up a relationship with a woman in Niagara Falls? Jackson purchased side-by-side burial plots for herself and Valachi. She at first declined to mark Valachi's grave, nestled against a chapel walkway, out of fear it would be desecrated. She joined him in the next world in 1999. One of the best quotes said about him and the Valachi hearings was this, It was like he came from another planet, with all this inside information that to him, was routine. Valachi comes along and tells the truth, and it lends credibility to what had been the gangster myth. Valachi didn't own much, but what he knew was valuable. The Valachi papers written by Peter Moss from interviews with Valachi and the mobster's own lengthy account of his experiences came out in 1968, and it was a blockbuster. A New York Times article four months after Valachi died 
quoted Jackson's attorney Bernard Sachs as stating Valachi received in the neighborhood of $30,000 thus far for his assistance with the book, but most of it went to pay his back taxes. Moss donated Valachi's memoirs, the full title being The Real Thing, The Exposé and Inside Doings of Cosa Nostra, to the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum, and he did that in 1980. The library also maintains Robert Kennedy's archives. Among the Valachi papers is Valachi's handwritten life story. The third sentence begins, Never did I receive anything at Christmas time. All I would get on Christmas was being awakened and having my father try and give me a glass of whiskey. As I tell this story to you all, the listeners of JFK, The Enduring Secret, I say that we should never forget that these are stories of humans and their lives and what has become of them in the cauldrons in which they repose. In the final analysis, Valachi's cooperation with the feds was considered one of Robert Kennedy's greatest achievements as Attorney General. his investigation subcommittee into the bloody maze of organized crime, inspired by information furnished by one Joseph Valachi, a member of the crime syndicate Cosa Nostra. Valachi turned informer because he himself was afraid of the murderous disciplinarians of his own organization. Valachi is serving a 20-year narcotic sentence and a life term for murder committed in prison when he thought a fellow inmate was the gang executioner commissioned to kill him for violating Cosa Nostra rules. The huge Senate caucus room, the scene of many past McClellan investigations, was crowded, but reporters, television cameramen, and photographers perhaps outnumbered the spectators. McClellan and his committee will again talk to Valachi tomorrow in secret. Friday, the historic stool pigeon is scheduled to take the stand in an open hearing, but he is reported to be balking unless granted immunity from crimes he might be involved in by his own testimony. Today, McClellan laid out this course for the investigation. During the course of these hearings, we intend to examine the nature of criminal organizations. We hope to determine whether existing laws are sufficient. We will give attention to the question of whether law enforcement agencies need more authority. And I may say personally that I have in mind a statute to deal directly with and to prohibit membership in such a criminal secret organization as Casa Nostra. Table was was a long table, and there was a gun and a knife on the table. And uh, how many were at the table? About thirty-five to forty. And sat me down, and 
And, and made me repeat in Italian. Did they set you down at the table or in a chair out front? They sat me down on the end of the table with Maranzana doing the talking, next to Maranzana. All right. Now, you sat next to him. Then what happened? Well, he had the knife and the gun on the table. I repeated some words he told me, but I only could explain what he meant. I could repeat the words, but they were in Sicilian. They were uh, what? In Sicilian. In you know, Sicilian. Sicilian. You repeated, but you didn't understand what they meant. Right. Then they explained. They explained what they meant. Who right. explained? Maranzana? Well, he could talk pretty good English, Maranzana. He talked 12 languages. Uh, he, didn't get... he went on to explain that you live by the gun and by the knife, and you die by the gun and by the knife. What kind of a ceremony did you go through well, then, and uh, taking that oath? Well, then I, uh, he, uh, he gave me a, a piece of paper, I suppose, you know, and burn it. And, uh, well, now, without burning the paper, just take a piece of paper there and show us what, what, how you did it. I, you don't even set the paper on yep, fire, but yeah. take a piece of, give him a piece of yep. paper. Let's demonstrate just what you did. In other ways, now, this piece of paper... This it's piece what? of paper is burnt. This paper is burnt. You light it. Yeah. And then, uh, in your hand, you say... Well, again, they give you words in Italian, but I know what it meant. In other words, while you were repeating yeah. the words, you were burning this, the paper. Right. This is the way I burn if I expose this organization. And you were, that was uh, uh, symbolic of, of the fate that was to befall you if you betrayed the organization. Right, until the piece of paper burned. You'd be burned to ashes. Right. All right. Now, what else did you do in that ceremony? Then after that, they, uh, they uh, got around the table and they threw numbers. They drew what? Numbers. Between one to five, for instance. How you mean? Well, here, like this, throw three or one or five. Let's say the way you got a table there right now. Everybody throws a number. In other words, we'd start down here at the table. Well, somebody would hold up a number. Each one would hold up some fingers. Uh, yeah, and we count the... We they count could hold up as many as they wanted to. Uh, uh, up to five. Up to five. Well, right. that's about all they go to. Well, let's say we start from you, Senator. Yeah, we start with me. And let's say it's 35, say 40. Hey, I put up two. Right. And he put up some. Yeah, you add it all up. Let's say and we... You get, add it all up. Let's say we get a figure about 38. About 38, all and right. we start from you. And let's say you go all around and it comes to uh, Senator, Senator next to you. Yeah, he's next to me. He is my, what you call, godfather. Then he, he, he picks your finger. Who, who? The godfather. He picks your finger? He picks your finger with a needle. Makes with a little blood come out. In other words, that's the express, the blood relation. Supposed to be like brothers. Uh, that's the letting of blood. That's right. In other words, uh, symbolic of the fact you're well, willing to spill your blood. Right. To give your blood, to give your life. Yeah. As to what I'm telling you now, I need to go no further to say nothing else. This here, what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing to you and the press and everybody, this is my doom. This is the promise I'm breaking that I... Now, my, even if I talk, I should never talk about this, and I'm doing so. That's my best way to explain. That is the highest oath you took. Right. In other words, that was the most sacred in, in this organization. Right. I want that you. That you would never tell this. Right. Right. 
speak. I didn't, he didn't speak just as soon as I got in there, naturally hanging around the hall until he was ready to speak. Uh, members were coming, and when he did get to speak, then he got up there and he, ex and, and he stopped to explain about Masari and his groups, that they were killing people without just, he mentioned some names, names that I didn't know or never even heard of. For instance, he mentioned they killed Don and Deneen and without just, and they killed uh, another name he mentioned, uh, which is on the top on the right there, uh, Senator. Uh, Rena, I, I didn't know any of these men. And he was explaining how the Masari group was doing these things. Now it's going to be different. He said, uh, uh, we're going to have, uh, first we have the boss of all bosses, which is myself. Uh, Maranzana now. Maranzana's talking. Then we have a boss, and then we have I mean, an underboss, under the boss, and then we have an regime. He was explaining all this. Now, uh, if if uh, a soldier, naturally we have the soldier, if a soldier wants to talk to a boss, he shouldn't take the privilege for him to try and go direct to the boss. He must first speak to the regime, then the regime, and if it's required, it's important enough, the regime will make an appointment for the soldier. And he went out to explain the rules. This is what I call the second government center. He was telling you how it is going to operate from was, now on. He was describing how it's going to operate. And, and the banquet followed right after this meeting. How long, how long did the banquet meeting last? The banquet lasted. Uh, it was a five-day uh, banquet, Senator. In other words, I don't mean that it ran continuously for five days. Uh, uh, for instance, you come in early in the evening and close maybe three, four, five in the morning, and then reopen again the next day. For five nights. For five nights. Five. You had, you had a banquet. Right. Right. Uh, what occurred with respect to that banquet? What was the purpose of it primarily? Well, if you well know? Uh, uh, the purpose was he just uh, uh, the money was supposed to be meant for the original soldiers and from, from self. The originals, what I mean, which was about 15, they were about 12. Now there's three, three of us there, makes it about 15. We're supposed to be to give these boys a chance, being they were away and now they broke, and for himself. That was the purpose, and, to be, and so he'd be recognized uh, as, you know, the boss, and uh, it was. And naturally, uh, they went to a lot of expense. Uh, they understand that, and that's what was the, point, the reason for the banquet. So it was a, a banquet to raise money and also to acknowledge uh, Maranzana as the boss of bosses. Right. They all were paying tribute to him and honoring him. Right. And recognizing him as the boss of bosses. Right. And this was to demonstrate it. Is that correct? What was that, Senator? This was to demonstrate it. That's right. To let everybody know that right. he was recognized as boss of bosses. Uh, right. What, uh, what uh, you, you said is also to raise money. Was yes, money well, raised during that time? If so, how and from I, whom? I understood uh, it was 115,000 he took in. He, uh, 
He sent out, for instance, a, a thousand tickets to Al Capone, and Al Capone sent six thousand. He sent a thousand tickets to uh, Buffalo, and they also sent six thousand. And Charlie Lucky himself sent six thousand. Them are the big amounts I know. Five-day banquet to raise money is the first first time this device has ever been described publicly. His other reflections and recollections today dealt with a man known as the Artichoke King, how a hoodlum came to be regarded as a failure in his chosen profession and died of a broken heart. Somebody described to me, I don't remember who, how Ciro was so shaky in putting the, uh, the key in the ignition that they threw him off the wheel. Uh, I'm talking about Ciro Tavanova. And uh, they threw him off the wheel and uh, Ever since then, Ciro Tavanova was getting what we call buckwheats. Uh, getting like what? What we call buckwheats, you know, like uh, he was being stripped, uh, uh, you know, a little at the time he was being taken off, uh, what, his power was being taken away from him. And uh, after a while, he took it so hard that he died from a broken heart. I'm talking about Ciro Tavanova. He kind of lost face, did he, with his... Yes. And they replaced him at that time with Mike Coppola. In other words, they felt that he didn't have enough nerve. Well, yes, he, uh, he, he uh, sort of put it this way, he disgraced himself. He disgraced himself. Uh, couldn't get the key... Uh, by showing his nervousness. Yeah, he was shaking. So uh, I got that from uh, the soldiers as we uh, go along in life. Thank you for listening to episode 121 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.